Chapter Three of Somehow Good by William Friend de Morgan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Helen Taylor, Oxford, UK. Chapter Three, Krakatoa Villa, and how the electrocuted traveller went there in a cab. A curious welcome to a perfect stranger. The stranger's label. A cancelled memory. Back like a bad shilling. Krakatoa was a semi-detached villa, a few minutes' walk from Shepherd's Bush Station. It looked like a showily-dressed wife of a shabby husband, for the semi-detached other villa next door had been standing to let for years, and its compo front was in a state of decomposition from past frosts, and its paint was parched and thin in the glare of the present June sun, and peeling and dripping spiritlessly from the closed shutters among the dead flies behind the cracked panes of glass that had quite forgotten the meaning of whitening and water, and that wouldn't hack out easy by reason of the putty having gone hard. One knew at a glance that if the turncock was to come see, and overcome the reluctance of the allotted cock to be turned, the water would burst out at every pore of the service pipes in that house, except the taps and would know also that the adept who came to soften their hearts and handles would have to go back for his tools, and would be a very long time away. Krakatoa, on the other hand, was resplendent with stone colour, and smelt strongly of it. And its door you could see through the glass of into the hall, when its shutters were not thumb-screwed up over the panes, was painted a green that staggered the reason, and smelt even more strongly than the stone colour and all the paint was so thick that the beadings on the door were dim memories, and all the execution on the sculptured goblets on pedestals flanking the steps in the front garden was as good as spoiled. And the paint simmered in the sun, and here and there it blistered, and altogether suggested that Krakatoa, like St. Nicholas, might have halved its coats with the beggar next door, given him, suppose, one flat and one round coat. Also that either the job had been hurried, and not given proper time to dry, or that the summer had come too soon, and we should pay for it later on, you see if we didn't. The coatless and woe-begone villa next door had almost lost its name, so faded was the lettering on the gate-post that was putting out its bell-handle to the passer-by, even as the patient puts out his tongue to the doctor. But experts in palimpsests, if they had penetrated the superscriptions in chalk and pencil of idle authorship, would have found that it was the retreat. Probably this would have been revealed, even if the texts had been merely bowdlerized with Indian rubber or a sponge, because there were a good many objectionable passages. But the retreat was a retreat, and smelt strong of the hermits, who were cats. Krakatoa was not a volcano, except so far as eruptions on the paint went, but then it had become Krakatoa through a mistake. For the four coats of paint at the end of the first seven years, as per agreement, having completely hidden the first name, Saratoga, and the builder's retention of it having been feeble, possibly even affected by newspaper posters, for it was not long after the date of the great eruption, the new name had crept in in the absence of those who would have corrected it, but had gone to Brighton to get out of the smell of the paint. When they returned, Mr. Pritchard, the builder, though shocked and hurt at the discovery that the wrong name had been put up, was strongly opposed to any correction or alteration, especially as it would always show, if altered back. You couldn't make a job of it, not to say a proper job, 
Besides, the names were morally the same, and it was absurd to allow a variation in the letters to impose on our imagination. The two names had been applied to very different turns out abroad, certainly, but then they did all sorts of things abroad. If Saratoga, why not Krakatoa? Mr. Pritchard was entrenched in a stronghold of total ignorance of literary matters, and his position, that mere differences of words ought not to tell upon a healthy mind, was difficult to shake, especially as he had the coin of vantage. He had only to remain inanimate, and what could a presumably widow lady with one small daughter do against him? So at the end of the first seven years what had been Saratoga became Krakatoa, and remained so. And it was in the back garden of the again newly painted villa, seven years later, that the lady of the house, who was watering the garden in the cool of the afternoon, asked her excited daughter, who had just come home in a cab, what on earth could have prompted her to do such a mad thing, such a perfectly insane thing. We shall see what it was immediately. "'Oh, Sally, Sally!' exclaimed the young person's still young and very handsome mother. "'What will the child do next?' "'Oh, Mamma, mamma! answered Sally, just on the edge of a burst of tears. "'What was I to do? What could I do? It was all my fault from the beginning. You know I couldn't leave him to be taken to the police station or the, or the hospital or—' "'Yes, of course you could. Why not? And not know what became of him or anything? Oh, mother!' "'You silly child, why on earth couldn't you leave him to the railway people?' "'And run away and leave him alone? "'Oh, mother! "'But you don't even know his name. "'Mamma, dear, how should I know his name? "'Don't you see, it was just like this.' "'And then Miss Sally Nightingale repeats, "'briefly and rapidly, for the second time, "'the circumstances of her interview in the railway carriage "'and its tragic ending. "'Also, their sequel on the railway platform.' with the partial recovery of the stunned or stupefied man, his inability to speak plainly, the unsuccessful search in his pockets for something to identify him, and the final decision to put him in a cab and take him to the workhouse infirmary, pending discovery of his identity. The end of her story has a note of relief in it. And it was then I saw Dr. Vereker on the platform. Oh, you saw Dr. Vereker? "'Of course I did, and he came with me. "'He's always so kind, you know, and he knew the station people, so—' "'Where is he now?' "'Outside in the cab. He stopped to see after the man. "'We couldn't both come away, so I came to tell you.' "'You stupid chit, why couldn't you tell me at first there? "'Don't cry and be a goose.' "'But Sally disclaims all intention of crying. "'Her mother discards the watering-pot and an apron.' and suppresses appearance of gardening, then goes quickly through the house, passes down the steps, between the scarlet geraniums in the overpainted goblets, through the gate on which Saratoga ought to be, and Krakatoa is, written, and finds a four-wheeled cab awaiting developments. One of its occupants alights and meets her on the pavement. A rapid colloquy ensues in undertones, ending in the slightly raised voice of the young man, who is clearly... Dr. Vereker. Of course, you're perfectly right, perfectly right, but you'll have to make my peace with Miss Sally for me. A chit of a girl like that. Fancy a responsible man like you letting himself be twisted round the finger of a young monkey. But you men are all alike. 
"'Well, you know, really, what Miss Sally said was quite true, "'that it was only a step out of the way to call here, "'and she had got this idea that it was all her fault.' "'Was it?' "'I can only go by what she says.' "'The girl comes into the conversation through the gate. "'She may perhaps have stopped for a word or two "'with cook and a house and parlour-maid, "'who were deeply interested in the rear. "'It was my fault,' she said. "'If it hadn't been for me, it would never have happened. "'Do see how he is now, Dr. Vereker.' It is open to surmise that the first strong impulse of generosity having died down under the corrective of a mother, our young lady is gradually seeing her way to interposing Dr. Vereker as a buffer between herself and the subject of the conversation, for she does not go to the cab door to look in at him. The doctor does. The mother holds as aloof as possible not to get entangled into any obligations. "'Get him away to the infirmary or the station at once,' she says. "'That's the best thing to be done. "'They'll take care of him till his friends come to claim him. "'Of course they'll come. They always do.' "'The doctor seems to share this confidence, or affects to do so. "'Sure to. His friends or his servants,' says he. "'But he can't give any account of himself yet. "'Of course I don't know what he'll be able to do tomorrow morning.' "'He resumes his place in the cab, beside its occupant, who except for an entire want of animation, looks much like what he did in the railway carriage. The same strong-looking man, with well-marked cheekbones, very thick brown hair and bushy brows, a skin rather tanned, and a scar on the bridge of the nose. Very strong hands, with a tattoo mark showing on the wrist, and an abnormal crop of hair on the back, running on to the fingers, but flawed by a scar or two. Add to this the chief thing you would recollect him by— an Elizabethan beard, and you will have all the particulars about him that a navy-blue serge suit with shirt to match allows to be seen of him. But you will have an impression that could you see his skin beyond the sun-mark limit on his hands and neck, you would find it also tattooed. Yet you would not at once conclude he was a sailor. Rather, your conclusion might go on other lines, but always assigning to him a rough, adventurous, outdoor life." When the doctor got into the cab and shut the door himself, he took too much for granted. He assumed the driver, without whom, if your horse has no ambition at all beyond tranquillity and an empty nose-bag, your condition is that of one camping out, or as one in a ship moored alongside in dock, the curbstone playing the part of the key. Boys will then accumulate and undervalue your appearance and belongings, and impossible persons with no previous or subsequent existence will endeavour to see their way to the establishment of a claim on you, and you will be rather grateful than otherwise that a policeman without active interests should accrue and communicate to them the virus of dispersal, however long its incubation may be. You will then probably do as Dr. Vereker did, and resent the driver's disappearance. The boys, mysteriously in his, each other's, and the policeman's confidence, all to your exclusion, will be able to quicken his movements, and he will come trooping from the horizon, on or beyond which is somebody's entire. All this came to pass in due course, and the horse, deprived of his nose-bag, returned to his professional obligations, but it was a shabby horse, in a shabby cab to which he imparted movement by falling forwards and saving himself just before he reached the ground. His reins were visibly made good with stout pack-thread, and he had a well-founded contempt for his whip, 
which seemed to come to an end too soon, and always to hit something wooden before it reached any sensitive part of his person. But he did get off at last, and showed that, as force is a mode of motion, so weakness is a mode of slowness, and one he took every advantage of. His mother and daughter stood looking after the vanished label, that stated that the complication of inefficiencies in front of it was one of twelve thousand and odd, pray heaven more competent ones, in the metropolis, and had nearly turned to go into the house, when the very much younger sister, that might have been, addressed the very much, but not impossibly, older one, thus. "'Mamma, he said he knew somebody of our name.' "'Well, Miss Fiddlestick?' with an implication of what of that, were there not plenty of nightingales in the world? Miss Sally is perceptive about this. Yes, but he said Rosalind. Where? He didn't say where, that's all he said. Rosalind. As the two stand together watching the retreating cab, we are able to see that our first impression of them, derived perhaps from their relative ages only, was an entirely false one, as far as size went. The daughter is nearly as tall as her mother, and may end by being as big a woman, when she has completely graduated, taken her degree, in womanhood. But for all that we, who have looked at both faces, know that when they turn round, we shall see on the shoulders of the one youth, inexperience, frankness, and expectation of things to come, on those of the other a head that keeps all the mere physical freshness of the twenties, if not quite the bloom of the teens, but expressed heaven knows how, experience, reserve, and retrospect on things that have been once and are not, and that we have no right to assume to be any concern of ours. Equally true of all faces of forty, do we understand you to say? Well, we don't know about that. It was all very strong in this face. We can look again when they turn round, but they don't, for number twelve thousand and odd has come to a standstill, and its energumenon has come down off its box, and is fiddling at something on the horse's head. So Cook says, evidently not impressed with that cab. The doctor looks out and confers, then gets out and comes back towards the house. The girl and her mother walk to meet him. Never saw such a four-wheeler in my life. The harness is tied up with string and the rain's broken. The idiot says that if he had a stout bit of whipcord he could make it square. No sooner have the words passed the doctor's lips and Miss Sally is off on a whipcord quest. I wish the child wouldn't always be in such a hurry, says her mother. Now she won't know where to get it. She calls out after her, ineffectually. The doctor suggests that he shall follow with instructions. Yes, suppose he does. There is precisely the thing wanted in the left-hand drawer of the table in the hall. The drawer the handle comes off. This seems unpromising, but the doctor goes, and transmission of messages ensues, heard within the house. Left alone, Mrs. Nightingale, the elder Rosalind, seems reflective. A funny thing, too, she says aloud to herself. She is thinking clearly of how this man in the cab, who can't give any account of himself, once knew a Rosalind Nightingale. Probably... The handle has come off the drawer, for they are a long time over that string. Curiosity has time to work, and has so much effect that the lady seems to determine that, after all, she would like to see the man. Now that the cab is so far from the door, even if she spoke to him, she would not stand committed to anything. It is all settled, arranged, 
ratified that he shall go to the police station or the infirmary or somewhere when the string and dr vereker and sally the daughter come out of the house both exclaim and the surprise they express is that the mother of the latter should have walked all the way after the cab and should be talking to the man in it it is not consistent with her previous attitude now isn't that like mamma says sally if so why be so astonished at it is a question that suggests itself to her hearer but self-confutation is not a disorder for his treatment besides the doctor likes it in this case his own surprise at mamma's conduct is unqualified by any intimate acquaintance with her character she may be inconsistency itself for anything he knows is she going to turn the cab around and bring him to the house after all it looks like it i'm so glad sally replies to the doctor i hope you won't repent it in sackcloth and ashes i shan't why do you think i shall how do you know you won't you'll see sally pinches her red lips tight over her two rows of pearls and nods confirmation her dark eyes look merry under the merry eyebrows and the lip pinch makes a dimple on her chin a dimple to remember her by she's a taking young lady there is no doubt of it at least the doctor has none yes sally it's quite all right thus her mother arriving a little ahead of the returning cab now don't dispute with me child but do just as i tell you we'll have him in the breakfast-room there's fewer steps she seems to have made up her mind so completely that neither of the others interposes a word but she replies moved by a brain-wave to a question that stirred in the doctor's mind oh yes he has spoken he spoke to me just now i'll tell you presently now let's get him out no never mind calling cook you take him on that side doctor that's right and then the man whose name we still do not know found himself half supported half standing alone on the pavement in front of a little white eligible residence smelling of new paint he did not in the least know what had happened he had only a vague impression that if some one or something he couldn't say what would only give up hindering him he would find something he was looking for but how could he find it if he didn't know what it was and that he was quite in the dark about the half-crown and the pretty girl who had given it to him the train-guard and his cowardice about responsibility the public-spirited gentleman the railway carriage itself to say nothing of all the exciting experiences of the morning all all had vanished leaving behind only the trace of the impulse to search nothing else he stood looking bewildered then spoke thickly i am giving trouble said he then the two ladies and the gentleman whom he saw dimly and did not know looked at one another each perhaps to see if one of the others would speak first in the end the lady who was a woman nodded to the gentleman to speak and then the lady who was a girl confirmed her by what was little more than an intention to nod not quite unmixed with a mischievous enjoyment at the devolution of the duty of speech on the gentleman it twinkled in her closed lips but the gentleman didn't seem overwhelmed with embarrassment he spoke as if he was used to things you've had an accident sir on the railway in the tuppany tube yes you'll remember all about it presently yes i'm a doctor yes we want you to come in and sit down and rest till you're better no it won't be a long job you'll soon come round what oh no 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 trouble at all 
It's this lady's house, and she wants you to come in. The speaker seems to guess at the right meanings, as one guesses in the jaws of the telephone, perhaps with more confidence. But there was but little audible articulation on the other's part. He did not seem to want much support, chiefly guidance. He was taken down the half-dozen steps that flanked a grass slope down to a stone paving, and through a door under the more numerous steps he had escaped climbing, and into a breakfast-room flush with a kitchen, opening on a small garden at the back. There was the marriage of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert over the chimney-piece, and a tortoiseshell cat with a collar on the oilskin cover of a square table, who rose as though half-resenting strange visitors, then, after stretching, decided on some haven less liable to disturbance, and went through the window to it without effort, emotion, or sound. There was a clock under a glass cover on the chimney-piece, whose works you could see through, with a fascinating ratchet movement of perfect grace and punctuality. Also, a vertical orange-yellow glass vase, twisted to a spiral and full of spills. Also, the leaning tower of Pisa, done small, in alabaster. He could see all these things quite plainly, and but that his tongue seemed to have struck work, he could have described them, but he could not make himself out, nor how and why he came to be there at all. Where ought he to have been, he asked himself, and to his horror he could not make that out either. Never mind. Patience was the word, clearly. Let him shut his eyes as he sat there, in the little breakfast-room, with the flies continually droning in the ceiling, and an especially large blue-bottle busy by the window, who might just as easily have gone out and enjoyed the last hour of long evening in a glorious sunshine, but who mysteriously preferred to beat himself forever against a closed pane of glass, a self-constituted prisoner between it and a gauze blind. Let him shut his eyes and try to think out what it all meant, what it was all about. All that he was perfectly certain of at that moment was that he was awake, with a contused pain all over, and very stiff left hand and foot, and that, knowing he had been insensible, he was striving hard to remember what something was that had happened just before he became insensible. He had nearly got it, once or twice. Yes, now he had got it, surely? Ah, oh, no, he hadn't. It was gone again. A mind that is struggling to remember some particular thing does not deal with other possibilities of oblivion. We all know the painful phenomenon of being perfectly aware what it is we are trying to remember, feeling constantly close to it, but always failing to grasp it. We know what it will sound like when we say it, what it will mean, where it was on the page we read it on, oh dear, yes, quite plainly. The only thing we can't remember for the life of us is what it was. And while we are making stupendous efforts to recapture some such thing, does it ever occur to any of us to ask if we may not be mistaken in our tacit assumption that we are quite certain to remember everything else as soon as we try? That, in fact, it may be our memory faculty itself that is in fault, and that we are only failing to recall one thing, because at the moment it is that one sole thing and no other that we are trying our brains against. It was so in the pause of a few minutes, in which this man we write of, left to himself and the ticking of the clock, and hearing, through the activity of the blue-bottle and the monotony of the ceiling-flies, the murmur of a distant conversation between his late companions, who for the moment had left him alone, 
tried in vain to recover his particular thread of memory, without any uneasiness about the innumerable skeins that made up the tissue of his record of a lifetime. When the young doctor returned, he found him still seated where he had left him, one hand over his eyes, the other on his knee. As he sat, for the doctor watched him from the door for a moment, he moved and replaced either hand at intervals, with implied distress in the movements. They gave the impression of constant attempt, constantly baffled. The doctor, a shrewd-seeming young man, with an attentive pale eye and very fair hair, seemed to understand. "'Let me recommend you to be quiet, and rest. Be quite quiet. You'll be all right when you've slept on it. Mrs. Nightingale, that's the lady you saw just now, this is her house, will see that you're properly taken care of.' Then the man tried to speak. It was with an effort. "'I, I wish to thank—I I must thank—' "'Never mind, thanks yet. All in good time. Now, what do you think you can take to eat or drink?' "'Nothing. Nothing to eat or drink.' "'Well, you know best. However, there's tea coming. Perhaps you'll go so far as a cup of tea. You would be the better for it.' Rosalind Junior, or Sally, slept in the back bedroom on the first floor. That is to say, if we ignore the basement floor, and call the one flush with the street doorstep the ground floor. We believe that we are right in doing so. Rosalind Senior, the mother, slept in the front one. It wasn't too late for tea, they had decided, and thereupon they had gone upstairs to revise and correct. After a certain amount of slopping and splashing in the back room, uncorroborated by any in the front, Sally called out to her mother on the disjointed lines of talk in real life. "'I like this soap!' "'Have you a safety-pin?' Whereto her mother replied, speaking rather drowsily and perfunctorily, "'Yes, but you must come and get it.' "'It's so nice and oily. It's not from Cackley's?' "'Yes, it is. I thought it was. Where's the pin?' At this point she came into her mother's room, covering her slightly retroussé nose with her fresh-washed hands to enjoy the aroma of Cackley's soap. "'In the little pink saucer, only don't rest my things about.' "'Headache, Mummy dear!' For her mother was lying back on the bed with her eyes closed. The speaker left her hands over her nostrils as she spoke, to do full justice to the soap, pausing an instant in her safety-pin raid for the answer. "'I've been feeling the heat. It's nothing. You go down, and I'll come. "'Have some eau de cologne?' But alas, there was no eau de cologne. "'Never mind. You go down, and I'll follow. I shall be all right after a cup of tea.' And Sally after an intricate movement with a safety-pin, an open-work lace cuff that has lost a button, and a white wrist, goes down three accelerandos of stair-lengths with landing-pauses, and ends with a dining-room door staccato. But she isn't gone long, for in two minutes the door reopens, and she comes upstairs as fast, nearly, as she went down. In her hand she carries, visibly, Johann Maria Farina. "'Where on earth did you find that?' says her mother. The man had it. Wasn't it funny? He heard me say to Dr. Vereker that I was so sorry I'd not been able to eau-de-cologne your forehead, and he began speaking and couldn't get his words, and then he got this out of his pocket. I remember one of the men at the station said something about his having a bottle, but I thought he meant a pocket-flask. He looks the sort of man that would have a pocket-flask and earrings. Her mother doesn't seem to find this inexplicable, nor to need comment. Rather the contrary. Sally dabs her brow with eau de cologne, beneficially, for she seems better, and says, now go, she won't be above a couple of minutes. Nor is she, 
in the sense in which her statement has been accepted, for she comes downstairs within seven by the clock with the dutiful ratchet movement. When she came within hearing of those in the room below, she heard a male voice that was not Dr. Vereker's. Yes, the man, whom we still cannot speak of by a name, was saying something, slowly, perhaps, but fairly articulately and intelligibly. She went very deliberately and listened in at the doorway. She looked very pale and very interested, a face of fixed attention, of absorption in something she was irresolute about, rather than of doubt about what she heard, an expression rather out of proportion to the concurrent facts as we know them. "'What is so strange,' this is what the man was saying in his slow way, "'is that I could find words to tell you, if I could remember what it is I have to tell.' But when I try to bring it back, my head fails. Tell me again, mademoiselle, about the railway carriage. Sally wondered why she was mademoiselle, but recognised a tone of deference in his use of the word. She did as he asked her, slightly interrupting her narrative, to make sure of getting the tea made right as she did so. I trod on your foot, you know. One, two, three spoonfuls. Surely you must remember that. Four, and a little one for the pot. I have completely forgotten it. Then I was sorry, and said I would have come off sooner if I'd known it was a foot. You must remember that. The man half smiled as he shook a slow, disclaiming head, one that would have remembered so gladly if it could. Then, continues Sally, I saw your thumb ring for rheumatism. My thumb ring. He presses his fingers over his closed eyes, as though to give memory a better chance by shutting off the visible present, then withdraws them. No, I remember no ring at all. How extraordinary! I remember a violent concussion somewhere, I can't say where, and then finding myself in a cab trying to speak to a lady whose face seemed familiar to me, but who she could be I had not the slightest idea. Then I tried to get out of the cab, and I found I could not move, or hardly. Look at Mamma again. Here she is. Come. For Mrs. Nightingale has come into the room, looking white. Yes, mother dear, I have. Quite full, up to the brim, only it isn't ready to pour yet. This last concerns the tea. Mrs. Nightingale moves round behind the tea-maker, and comes full face in front of her guest. One might have fancied that the hand that held the pocket-handkerchief that caused the smell of eau de cologne that came in with her was tremulous. But then that very eau de cologne was eloquent about the recent effect of the heat. Of course, she was a little upset. Nothing strikes the doctor or Mademoiselle Sally as abnormal or extraordinary. The latter resumes. Surely, sir. Oh, you must, you must remember about the name Nightingale. This young gentleman said it just now. Your name, madam? Certainly my name, says the lady addressed. But Sally distinguishes. "'Yes, but I didn't mean that. I meant when I took the ring from you, and was to pay for it. Sixpence. And you had no change for half a crown. And then I gave you my mother's card to send it to us here. One and elevenpence because of the postage. Why, surely you can remember that.' She cannot bring herself to believe him. Dr. Vereker does, though, and tells him not to try recollecting. He will only put himself back. "'Take the tea and wait a bit,' is the doctor's advice." for Miss Sally is transmitting a cup of tea with studied equilibrium. He receives it absently, leaving it on the table. "'I do not know if you will know what I mean,' he says. 
but I have a sort of feeling of of being frightened, for I've been trying to remember things, and I find I can remember almost nothing. Perhaps I should say I cannot remember at all. Can't do any recollecting, if you understand. Everyone can understand, at least each says so. Sally goes on, half sotto voce. You can recollect your own name, I suppose. She speaks halfway between soliloquy and dialogue. The doctor throws in counsel aside for precaution. You'll only make matters worse like that. Better leave him quite alone. But the man's hearing does not seem to have suffered, for he catches the remark about his name. I can't tell, he says. I I'm not so sure. Of course, I can't have forgotten my own name, because that's impossible. I will tell it you in a minute. Oh, dear! The young doctor seems to disapprove highly of these efforts, and to wish to change the conversation. Let it alone now, says he, only for a little. Would you kindly allow me to see your arm again? Let him drink his tea first. This is from Miss Sally, the tea priestess. Another cup? But no, he won't take another cup, thanks. Now let's have the coat off and get another look at the arm. Never mind apologising. But the patient had not contemplated apology. It was the stiffness made him slow. However, he got his coat off and drew the blue shirt off his left arm. He had a fine hand and arm, but the hand hung inanimate, and the fingers looked scorched. Dr. Vereker began feeling the arm at intervals all the way up, and asking each time questions about the degree of sensibility. "'I couldn't say whether it's normal or not up there,' so the patient testified. And Mrs. Nightingale, who was watching the examination intently, suggested trying the other arm in the same place for comparison. "'You didn't see the other arm at the station, doctor?' she said. "'Didn't I? I was asking.' "'Well, no. Now I come to think of it, I, I don't think I did. "'We'll have a look now, anyhow.' "'You're a nice doctor.' This is from Miss Sally, a little confidential fling at the profession. She is no respecter of persons. Her mother would, no doubt, check her, a pert little monkey, only she is absorbed in the examination. The doctor, as he ran back the right arm sleeve, uttered an exclamation. "'Why, my dear sir!' cried he. "'Here we have it. What more can we want?' and pointed at the arm. And Sally said, as though relieved, "'He's got his name written on him, plain enough, anyhow.' Her mother gave a sigh of relief, or something like it, and said, "'Yes.' The patient himself seemed quite as much perplexed as pleased at the discovery, saying only, in a subdued way, "'It must be my name.' But he did not seem to accept at all readily the name tattooed on his arm, A. Fenwick, 1878.' "'Whose name can it be, if it is not yours?' said Mrs. Nightingale. She fixed her eyes on his face as though to watch his effort of memory. "'Try and think,' but the doctor protested. "'Don't do anything of the sort,' said he. "'It's very bad for him, Mrs. Nightingale. He mustn't think. Just let him rest.' The patient, however, could not resign himself without a struggle to this state of anonymous ambiguity. His bewilderment was painful to witness. "'If it were my name,' he said, speaking slowly and not very clearly, "'surely it would bring back the first name. "'I try to recall the word, and the effort is painful, and doesn't succeed.' "'His hostess seemed much interested, even to the extent of ignoring the doctor's injunctions. "'Very curious. 
If you heard the name now, would you recollect it? I wish you wouldn't try these experiments, said the doctor. They won't do him any good. Rest's the thing. I think I would rather try, says Fenwick, as we may now call him. I will be quiet if I can't get this right. Mrs. Nightingale begins repeating names that begin with A. Alfred, Augustus, Arthur, Andrew, Algernon. Fenwick's face brightens. That's it, says he. Algernon. I knew it quite well at the time, of course, but I couldn't... couldn't... However, I don't feel that I shall make myself understood. I can't make out, said Sally, how you came to remember the bottle of eau de cologne. I did not remember it. I do not now. I mean, how it came to be in the pocket. I can remember nothing else that was there. Would have been, that is. There is nothing else there now, except my cigar-case and a pocket-book with nothing much in it. I can tell nothing about my watch. A watch ought to be there. There, there, says the doctor. You will remember it all presently. Do take my advice and be quiet and sit still and don't talk. But half an hour or more after, although he had taken this advice, Fenwick remembered nothing, or professed to have remembered nothing. He seemed, however, much more collected, and except on the memory point, nearly normal. When the doctor, looking at his watch, referred to his obligation to keep another engagement, Fenwick rose, saying that he was now perfectly well able to walk, and he would intrude no longer on his hostesses at hospitality. This would have been perfectly reasonable, but for one thing. It had come out that his pockets were empty, and he was evidently quite without any definite plan as to what he should do next or where he should go. He was only anxious to relieve his new friends of an encumbrance. He was evidently the sort of person on whom the character sat ill, one who would always be most at ease when shifting for himself, such a one as would reply to any doubt thrown on his power of doing so, that he had been in many a worse plight than this before. Yet you would hardly have classed him on that account as an adventurer, because that term implies unscrupulousness in the way one shifts for oneself. His face was a perfectly honourable one. It was a face whose strength did not interfere with its refinement, and there was a pleasant candour in the smile that covered it, as he finally made ready to depart with the doctor. He should never, he said, know how to be grateful enough to Madame and her daughter for their kindness to him. But when pressed on the point of where he intended to go, and how they should hear what had become of him, he answered vaguely. He was undecided, but of course he would write and tell them, as they so kindly wished to hear of him, would Mademoiselle give him the address written down? They found themselves, at least the doctor and Sally did, inferring, from his refreshed manner and his confidence about departing, that his memory was coming back, or would come back. It might have seemed needless inquisitiveness to press him with further questions. They left the point alone. After all, they had no more right to catechise him about himself than if he had been knocked down by a cart outside the door and brought into the house unconscious, a thing which might quite well have happened. Mrs. Nightingale seemed very anxious he should not go away quite unprovided with money. She asked Dr. Vereker to pass him on a loan from her before he parted with him. He could post it back when it was quite convenient, so the doctor was to tell him. The doctor asked, wasn't a sovereign a large order? But she seemed to think not. Besides, said she, it makes it certain we shall not lose sight of him. 
I'm not sure we ought to let him go at all, added she. She seemed very uneasy about it, almost exaggeratedly so, the doctor thought. But he was reassuring and confident, and she allowed his judgment to overrule hers. But he must bring him back without scruple, if he saw reason to do so. He promised, and the two departed together, the gait and manner of Fenwick giving rise to no immediate apprehension. "'How rum!' said Sally, when they had gone. "'I never thought I should live to see a man electrocuted.' "'A man what?' "'Well, half electrocuted, then. "'I say, mother.' "'What, dear?' "'She's looking very tired, and speaks absently.' Sally makes the heat responsible again in her mind, and continues. "'I don't believe his name's Algernon at all. "'It's Arthur, or Andrew, or something of that sort. "'You're very wise, Poppet. Why?' "'Because you stopped such a long time after Algernon. "'It was like cheating at spiritualism. "'You must say the alphabet quite steady. "'A, B, C, D,' Sally sketches out the proper attitude for the impartial inquirer. "'or else you're an accomplice. "'You're a puss. "'No, his name's Algernon, right enough. "'I mean, I've no doubt it's Algernon. "'Why shouldn't it be?' "'No reason at all. "'Dr. Vericus is Conrad, so, of course, "'there's no reason why his shouldn't be Algernon. "'Satisfactory and convincing. "'At least the speaker thinks so, and is perfectly satisfied. "'Her mother doesn't quarrel with the decision. "'Kitten,' she says suddenly, and then, in reply to her daughter's, "'What's up, Mummy, dear?' She suggests that they should walk out in front. It's a quiet, retired sort of cul-de-sac road, ending in a fence done over with tar, with nails along the top, like the letter L upside down, in the cool. "'It's quite delicious now the sun's gone down, and Martha can make supper half an hour late.' Agreed. The mother pauses as they reach the gate. "'Who's that talking?' she asks, and listens. "'Nobody. It's only the sparrows going to bed. "'No, no, no, not that. Shh, be quiet. "'I'm sure I heard Dr. Vereker's voice. "'How could you? He's home by now. "'Do be quiet, child.' "'She continues listening. "'Why not look round the corner and see if it isn't him?' "'Well, I was going to. "'Only you and the sparrows make such a chattering. "'There, I knew it would be that. "'Why doesn't he bring him back here at once?' For at the end of the short road are Dr. Vereker and Fenwick, the latter with his hand on top of a post, as though resting. They must have been there some minutes. "'Fancy they having got no further than the fire alarm,' says Sally, who takes account of her surroundings. "'Of course, I ought never to have let him go,' thus her mother with decision in her voice. "'Come on, child.' She seems greatly relieved at the matter having settled itself. So Sally thinks, at least." "'We've got as far as this,' Dr. Vereker says, rather meaninglessly, if you come to think of it. It is so very obvious. "'And now,' said Mrs. Nightingale, "'how is he to be got back again? That's the question.' She seems not to have the smallest doubt about the question, but much about the answer. It is answered, however, with the assistance of the previous police constable, who reappears like a ghost, and Mr. Fenwick is back again, within the little white villa, much embarrassed at the trouble he is giving, but unable to indicate any other course. Clearly it would never do to accept the only one he can suggest, that he should be left to himself, leaning on the fire-alarm, till the full use of his limbs should come back to him. Mrs. Nightingale, who is the person principally involved, seems quite content with the arrangement. The doctor, 
in his own mind is rather puzzled at her ready acquiescence, but then the only suggestion he could make would be that he should do precisely the same good office himself to this victim of an electric current of a good deal too many volts, too many for private consumption, or cab him off to the police station or the workhouse. For Mr. Fenwick continues quite unable to give any account of his past or his belongings, and can only look forward to recollecting himself, as it were, to-morrow morning. End of chapter 3